I sort of left you on a bad cliffhanger two weeks ago, didn't I? I, uh, I implied at the end of uh, my last sermon that this beautiful prayer that we just read had been reduced to uh, an empty phrase, a vain repetition that needed to be re-examined, repurposed, looked at again, and see how we can make it more than that. And then instead of coming back the next week and clarifying, I fled to the mountains for a weekend. <laughs> Whoops. Sorry about that. Bad, bad planning on my behalf, perhaps. But uh, today I'm going to make good on that promise. And by doing so, I want to take a brief step back before we step forward into the text. Because it's important to recognize as we approach the topic of prayer that none of us deserve to be able to pray. It's a heavy thought, but it's true. Um, We are all sinners. We've all been separated from God because of our sins. The Bible tells us as much in Isaiah 59 verse 1 that says that your sins have separated you from the Lord your God. And because of that separation of our sins and our wickedness and the ways we fail to measure up to God's standard, and He is holy and perfect and exalted, what right do we have to approach God in prayer? by our own merit. But that being said, that is exactly why Jesus Christ came into this world, to mend that separation, to wash us free from that very thing that separated us from God, so that we could be completely forgiven, and that God, when he looks at us, he no longer looks at us for our mistakes, for our guilt and all of the shame that we carry, but he looks at us and sees instead the righteousness of his son Jesus Christ when he looks at us, seeing that blood of Jesus that we sing about and we read about that says has washed us clean from all inequity. And so because that thing that, that thing that separated us from God has been removed, as the psalmist wrote, as far as the east is from the west, we're no longer separated spiritually from our Father. And so because of that, We now have that boldness and confidence to approach God that we read about in our first reading. To find grace, to meet and commune with the Lord our God. So we need to learn to view even prayer as a blood-bought gift from our Savior. That it's because of Jesus Christ that we are able to approach God in prayer and enjoy Him. And as we learned in our time together two weeks ago, this means we don't have to earn our audience with God as the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of Jesus' time were trying to do, thinking that God might be able to hear them because of their long, eloquent prayers, trying to look good in front of others, thinking that if I pray for long enough and use enough long, eloquent words, maybe then God will hear me. But that's not what the Bible tells me. The Bible tells me that as his child, I'm able to approach my father. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. So the question remained. I wasn't quite able to get through the end of verse 8, which really answers the question, how are we supposed to pray? We learned how not to pray through these long prayers and through trying to be heard, you know, in our own goodness. But let's see how we are supposed to pray. Jesus begins in verse 8 saying, do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. 
And again, that's opposed to the Pharisees who thought they'd be hurt for their many words. But here it says, your father already knows what you need. A reminder that our prayers don't actually inform God. God already knows what we're going to pray for before we pray. And so it's not to inform God that we pray, but it's to commune with him, to have fellowship with him, to meet with God. Now, at this point, some people ask, you know, and it's a genuine question. Well, if God knows what I'm going to pray before I pray already, and he knows what I need, why do I pray in the first place? You know, that's a good question. So for that, I have a question in response. For those of you who are parents this morning, why do you talk to your kids? Think about it. I mean, you know what they need most of the time anyway. I mean, just give them three meals a day and access to a bathroom and they'll be fine. Why are you guys chuckling? I mean, why is it so ludicrous to not talk to your kids? Because that's the whole point of having kids. As a father of three myself, I love being a parent. I love just meeting with my kids and just talking with them. They're talking to me about their day, and I'm not getting anything out of it. I know what they've done, but I enjoy spending time with them. Saints, why don't we view our relationship with God that way? As an opportunity to meet with our Father and spend time with Him. He's not some, I mean, it, 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 it He's not some operations manager that doesn't care and so long as all the work's getting done, just give them what they need. But no, he is our father who loves us and cares for us. And I want to spend time with him and enjoy his presence. You know, those conversations I have with my kids, they're insignificant logistically. I'm not learning much from them, but I'm enjoying them. And I love them and want to spend, and I look forward to those times. And so as we move forward in our text, getting to what we read this morning, from this verse, verse 8 to verse 13, tells us how we should pray, not what we should mindlessly pray. Now, the, the people who can't see this prayer as anything other than a script to follow, the Our Father, if you will, um, probably have difficulty with other parts of the Bible that are meant to be interpreted non-literally. You guys do know that the Bible does speak of something symbolically or metaphorically. I mean, look at the table we're about to celebrate, the Lord's Supper. When Jesus said, you know, this is my body holding up the bread, he didn't mean he was made of bread. He was speaking symbolically that like this piece of bread, it's going to be broken. And that was what we're to understand. It, what Jesus wasn't saying, I'm made of wheat. In the same way, when he said, I am the door, he didn't mean he was made out of wood. He was making a point, an example, a symbolic example. And in the same way, Jesus is now offering us this prayer as a way for us to understand, well, you can pray like this. And it doesn't say pray exactly like this, but in verse 9 it says, pray then like this. Or in some translations, you know, pray in this manner. So this beautiful prayer isn't intended to solely be a script for us to copy and paste into our own prayer life. But a model prayer for us to incorporate into our own prayer life. In other words, see how Jesus is praying in this prayer. How is he approaching God? What is he asking for? What are the reasons why he's asking for those things and not others? 
We should learn the answers to those questions and incorporate that into our own prayer life. The principles of this prayer, not just the words themselves. But before I get in too much trouble with some of you, I do believe that there is, some, that there is merit to praying this prayer word for word as we have been doing, as has been our tradition. It's a beautiful prayer. It is so elegant. It, it, it is structured perfectly with an introduction, a conclusion, six petitions, three towards God and three towards us. It is simple, short, powerful, and elegant. There's, there's merit in praying like that. And when we recite this from the heart with our understanding, it can be beautiful and it can be quite meaningful. But if we never learn from it, or if we just mindlessly repeat it day after day, year after year, there's no merit to it for the sake of repeating it. I hope you guys see where I'm going from with this. So we should learn from it and not just mindlessly repeat it with the same passion that we recite a shopping list. But learn from it, and when we do pray it together as part of our service, to pray for it with our minds, with our understanding, thinking about what these words mean. So let's look at this prayer. Let's see what we can learn from it as we, as we go back to our text. How does Jesus begin this prayer? By remembering who it is who we are praying to. Or he begins by saying, Our Father. Our Father. Already that's profound. The first thing we should do as we remember, as we pray, to, is to remember that we are praying to our Heavenly Father. Not some far off deity that doesn't care, but our Father who loves us and cares for us, who knows us, who made us. And, you know, I, and there is warmth in that relationship as you think of our own, maybe some of our own relationships of fathers and our, as a father relates to their children, so we relate to God. And where is our father? It says our father in heaven. A beautiful contrast as, you sh as we see the nearness of God in the warmth of his fatherhood. But at the same time, the separation of him being in heaven, high and exalted, lifted up. There's still that level of separation and that regard for his holiness. That subtle but clear reminder that he is holy and we are not yet. And as Christians, we hold that tension in a spirit of just awe and wonder. As it's only through, as we've said before, that it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that we are given this privilege of being his children. And by the way, while we're on that, it should, it should be said, God is God to everyone, but he is only Father to those who accept the Son. God is God to everyone, but he's only Father to those who accept the Son. The Bible tells us as much in 1 John 2.23 that says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So it's not technically correct to say we are all God's children. That's profound. We should, we should dwell on that for a moment. We are not all God's children in that sense. Yes, we are all one race, the human race. We are all together. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us. So there is a brotherhood of humanity in one race. But we are only 
But we only have the Father if we have the Son and are adopted into the family through the Son. Something to think about. And by the way, no other religion makes the claim that God is our Father. No other religion does. If you look into it, there's, there are some that call uh, God the Mother, but never exclusively God the Father. It's a unique privilege offered to us. So Jesus is offering something radical here, even just within the first two words of this beautiful prayer. And after remembering who we are praying to, what is the first petition of this prayer? He says, hallowed be thy name. I memorized it the same way you do, so your translation might say your name. I'm going to be going back and forth for the next couple of weeks. But hallowed be your name can also be translated, let your name be kept holy, or let your name be treated with reverence. You know, that's that semantic range that Dr. Fazerano was talking about last week, how there's, you know, a range of ways you can translate things from one, um, from one um, language to another. But it, you see the point that he's driving at there, that his name be regarded as holy and special and set apart. And it's interesting that by saying, hallowed be thy name, Jesus isn't just jumping into our prayer requests, jumping into our own personal needs in this prayer. But his primary concern is that God would be worshipped, glorified, and exalted. Now, part of our problem in our prayers is that so many of our prayers are us-centered rather than being God-centered. James 4.3 says that we ask in prayer and do not receive because we ask wrongly to spend, it with our pa- to spend it on our passions. I mean, too often we treat our prayer life like, like Amazon.com. <laughs> like we just fill up our cart with prayer requests and we expect our Father to ship it all to us. Like a celestial shopping list it's been referred to as. But let me, let me reframe all of this for a second. The things that we pray for ought to reflect a desire to see God be glorified. Even the things that we pray for about in our own lives. I mean, yes, we pray that God would be worshipped by his saints in his church. And that his name would be magnified into the community around us. That's why we're doing these outreaches coming up. That's why we're doing this block party coming up in a few weeks. Um, it's to see... Um, his name be magnified and glorified and be kept holy. But at the same time, you know, we ask that God, even in our personal requests, we ask that God's name be glorified in the process. Like when we pray for, like when I was praying for even my own back, you know, as many of you know, I had back surgery just back in March. And back then, you know, my prayer request wasn't just for myself to feel better, although that certainly was part of it. But it was also so that, you know, Lord, let, let me, let this be successful. Let, the, let, let me be healed so that I can continue doing what I'm doing for you, so I can continue ministering in the way that I have been. And Lord, may, may you be glorified by the way I get recovered in all of this. You know, that, that the doctors would know that God's hand has been on this guy. You know, I'm praying that God would be glorified through the process. Through the lens, it's like a lens that we view all the other prayers that we bring up to God through. 
So you see my point. We seek God's glory however we pray. And attached to that first petition of hallowed be thy name is the second, your kingdom come. And the kingdom of God is interesting because it's one of those concepts that is, that is to come and is now. How God's literal kingdom is coming someday, we believe as Christians, but it is also here now. Here now and for, the, for all of those who say Jesus is Lord now, today, are part of his kingdom. And for the sake of God's glory, we pray for his kingdom to expand, for people to know him, to enjoy him, to be satisfied in him, both now and to come. Now, I don't have much time to elaborate, but I'll leave you with one thought on this subject, uh, that it's not just about the quantity of believers that are out there in the world, but the quality that those of us who do believe in him do say Jesus is Lord and live our lives according to him and give him glory in our lives. In fact, I'll leave you with one last quote on this topic. Um, Pastor John Piper, a very prominent pastor out in the West, said, once said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I'll leave you with that to ponder. And the third um, petition of this prayer is that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, this is part of that to come but not yet dichotomy that we hold to as Christians. As this part of the prayer won't be fully realized until Christ's return to the earth. But until then, he still sovereignly wills all things in accordance with his will. You know, things get dark sometimes in this world, but Jesus is still in control. We have that promise and we have that comfort that with all that's going on in the world, with wars and rumors of wars, of plagues and famines and all this other horrible things that you see every night on the news, Jesus is still seated on his throne. He's still in control. And it's, I often like to joke around saying, he's not seated on the edge of his seat. He's not sitting there worried, wondering well, how this is all going to work out. Like some of you guys watch football in the fourth quarter. I've seen you <laughs> sitting on the edge of your seat wondering if everything is going to turn out okay. That's not our God. He is seated on his throne. And because we believe this, we continue to pray that he would work all things together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, as Romans 8.28 tells us. That's really our prayer. That's the verse that anchors our understanding of when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this covers about half of how we are to approach God in prayer. Uh, we pray to our Father who loves us and cares for us. We pray for his name to be worshipped and glorified. We pray for his sovereign and perfect will to be done. And as we go into next week, we will move into three more final petitions where we finally address our own personal prayer requests. And we will see that they're still tied to these first three, that we view these, uh, the three petitions of how we approach God or how we lift our personal requests to God through the lens of how we view God in the first place. 
and the things that we pray for, for his glory, for his name. And again, that reminder that the only reason we have any leg to stay on, stand on and when it comes to our prayer life is because of the cross of Jesus Christ. That because he gave his life for us on the cross as a ransom offering for us, that that separation that kept us from God has been removed. And that we can now approach our Heavenly Father, just like a man speaks to his friend as Moses prayed. You know, it's interesting that I, I love the imagery that when, when Jesus died on the cross, the Gospels inform us that that's when the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom so that it couldn't have been done by human hands. As it was so high lifted up, they didn't have any mechanism to do such a thing. And I, I just find that so, such a beautiful poetic detail for the gospel writers to include in their writings. As it's such a visible object lesson of the symbol of the Old Testament of a separation between God and man was literally torn as Christ gave his life on the cross for us. How beautiful is that? That, that symbol that separated that, that separation that required this complicated priesthood and sacrifices was then, late, was then labeled obsolete through the completed work of Jesus on the cross. So in that way, with that in mind, it's because of this table that we are about to celebrate, the Lord's Supper, where we remember his body broken for us and his blood spilled for us. That's the only way, the only reason we are able to pray to God in the first place because of this table the body that was broken and the blood that was shed and it's because of that that makes sense of our first reading this morning that it's only because of that that we can come boldly it says in some translations but with confidence before the throne of grace in prayer so this week let's approach God in prayer with confidence, with boldness, not with timidity when we approach, that some of us have when approaching a stranger, but with confidence as a child approaches their father. With the same boldness that my children constantly kick in the door to my office. Whether or not they know or aware or care of what I'm doing, they kick down that door and they meet with me. Let's do the same with our Heavenly Father this week. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.